Ever been impressed with someone and wonder, what was he or she like as a child? Ever thought that? You're, you're, you're really impressed with the way someone is and you're thinking to yourself, have they always been that way? Have they always been that, that kind, that loving, that generous, that intelligent, that gifted? Sometimes we do this with professional athletes. We're amazed at their skill and we wonder, have they always been that good? Have they always been better than everybody else? Always been bigger? Always been faster? Many have, have asked these sorts of questions about Jesus, not his athletic ability, but amazed at his great person and work, many have thought on the question, what was Jesus like as a baby? What was he like as a young boy? Well, we don't have much in the gospel accounts, but most of what we do have, Luke gives us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be studying verses 40 through 52 today, continuing our sermon series in Luke. And today we are finishing out the first section of this book on the early life of Jesus. And as we end, we arrive at a very unique story in Scripture. It's a story of Jesus as a young boy. And other than the visit from the Magi and in Matthew 2, this is the only story in Scripture taken from Jesus' childhood. Two of the four Gospels tell of Jesus' birth. One, the Gospel of John traces the Son of God's origins back to eternity past, before the beginning began. Matthew gives us the story of the visit from the wise men, and then each one fast forward pretty quickly to Jesus in his 30s, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, shortly before his death three years later. But in Luke's account, we get a couple of stories from Jesus' early life after his birth. Last week, we studied the other childhood story Luke gives us a, a short time after Jesus' birth when he's, when he's circumcised and taken to the temple as a, a baby a month after his birth where he has this encounter with two faithful followers of God Simeon and Anna. We looked at, at those stories last week, and we talked about all that we learn of who Jesus is from this story. And I asked you last week, and I felt led to ask it again today, who do you say that he is? Who do you say Jesus is? Or let me, let me phrase it in this way. What is shown of Jesus in Scripture? Who is Jesus shown to be in the Word of God? Listen, your response to this revelation is the most important response you'll ever make in your life because that is the most important question. Luke provides for us answers to who Jesus is early in his gospel account. Now, before we get started in the text we're going to look at today, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to do in this text. This passage has been the source of controversy for some concerning Jesus in his early life because some argue that Jesus does something wrong here in his early life. There is something that Jesus is going to do 
that upsets his parents and there is a way in which his mother responds that has caused some to say Jesus messes up here. Now, I know most of you don't believe that, right? But this is a good opportunity to look at this text and the difficulty from this text and give you a few tips on how to study your Bible and where to go to find answers to difficult questions raised in the text of Scripture. There are a few things to keep in mind here. One, when it comes to whether or not Jesus messes up here, you have to first ask yourself this question. Is this consistent with the rest of what the Bible teaches about Jesus? Does it jive with Scripture? Is it compatible with what the rest of Scripture says about Jesus? That's the first question you need to answer. And we find our answer throughout the New Testament, right? Throughout the New Testament, we learn Jesus is the second Adam. He succeeded. He was successful. In all the ways Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. When we're in our study through Hebrews, we learn that Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He is our perfect high priest, right? Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus was tempted like we are, but was without sin. He is sinless, perfect, so it doesn't jive with what Scripture teaches about Jesus. It's also important to look within the text itself. When you have difficulties with the certain verse of Scripture, look for answers within the text. Ask yourself, does it jive with the text I'm studying? Bible Study 101 tells us when we have difficult questions from a verse of Scripture, look for answers within that text of Scripture. And oftentimes, you find your answer. You certainly do in the passage we're going to look at today. Here's something else you need to know as well. The writers of Scripture who are carried along by the Holy Spirit, they do not often allow sinful acts to go unnoticed. The Spirit of God often highlights when something is wrong. Think about David and his sin with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, we're told this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. Uh-oh. David's king, right? And we're told in the text, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David is at home. David is not where he's supposed to be. He's in the wrong place, at the wrong time, sees Bathsheba, sins against God. Listen to how the chapter ends. It begins by letting us know David is not where he is supposed to be. And we learn at the end that he does something he's not supposed to do. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband killed. And notice the Spirit of God does not simply just explain what happened, but he tells the reader at the end of the chapter, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Spirit of God does not allow sin in a text of Scripture to go without comment. We don't have any of that here in Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. Nothing negative said about Jesus. In fact, the opposite. 
Look at verse 40 and then skip down to verse 52. First verse 40 of Luke 2. And the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Twice we're told that Christ increased in wisdom and that he was favored by God. I think that's good, don't you? And some upon hearing this will say, okay, if Jesus never did anything wrong, if he was submissive to authority and, and loving and spiritually mature and obedient and favored by God, why does he have all these problems with people? Why did his life end the way that it did? Well, believers, you should know the answer to that, right? But this might have been a question that Theophilus was asking, that Luke was answering. Luke, along with the other gospel writers, answers this question for us. He tells us throughout the course of this book that Jesus was arrested and tried and killed because of what his followers said of him, who he claimed to be, and what he came to do. He came to do just that, to lay his life down, to give his life, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. So we are going to look at a few more truths from this text this morning about Jesus, you're going to be challenged once again to answer this question of whether or not you believe Jesus is who he claimed to be and what your response is going to be. Let's take a few moments to dig in to this text to examine a few more truths about Jesus. Number one, here's what we learned from this text. Number one, Jesus emptied himself by becoming a man. Jesus became a man. How much of a man? A complete man. Truly man. Ligon Duncan says this. He says, he doesn't just appear to be human. He's not just a spirit that looks like he's human, but he's not really human. He is fully human. Now, did he empty himself of his godness, of his, of his deity? Did he cease to be God? No. He's truly God and truly man. And you ask yourself, well, how does that work? It's a mystery. Easy answer, right? Mystery. Doesn't go against reason. It's not contradictory because we're talking about two separate things. When we talk about Jesus' humanity and his deity, it doesn't go counter to reason, but it does go beyond our reasoning. He existed in the form of God. He, he is God. He, he existed in eternity past as God. He is the eternal Son of God. But there was a time in history when the Son of God took on flesh, became one of us. A living, breathing, created being. While eternal, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, self-sufficient, Jesus took on flesh and was limited in his humanity. As a man, he was born. He was limited by space and time, physically needy, intellectually lacking. If that were not true, then neither would verse 40 and verse 52 be true. That tell us that Jesus grew matured physically, mentally, and spiritually. Now, why did Jesus do this? 
Why did he take on these limitations by becoming one of us? Why did he, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 7, empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men? He did it to be our perfect representative, to succeed in all the ways we failed to be our second Adam, so that we, through faith alone, in him alone, could have his righteous life in exchange for our sinful one. He came to us, became one of us in order to save us. This is the links that God has gone through so that we might be forgiven and rescued and restored. God the Son took on flesh, lived for us, died in our place, rose again, that he might raise us up from death to eternal life. That's the gospel. That's good news. Believers, there's wonderful application for us here after we trust in Him alone for salvation. If God the Son went to these great lengths to serve and to save us, how much more so should we, as imitators of Him, love and serve others and give our lives to others, pour into them and love and serve them? If Christ, being who he is, did what he did, came not to be served but to serve, how much more so should we? Notice what else we learn of Jesus here. We learn, like we did last week, that Jesus perfectly met the demands of God's command. Now, again, at this time, he's being led by faithful parents. We talked about this last week. God, in his great providence, placed his son in the home with a mother and father who were righteous and devout so that Christ's whole life would be lived in accordance with God's word. We learned last week that his mother and father, at the end of eight days, circumcised him and named him Jesus. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. They are obedient. Well, 12 years has passed and nothing's changed. They're consistently parenting him in a way that's honoring to God. Can that be said of you today, parents? They're consistent in this way. Twelve years have passed. Jesus is one birthday away from manhood according to Jewish custom. At 13, young men were considered from that point forward full-fledged sons of the covenant. He would have all the rights at 13 and responsibilities of adulthood so his last year of childhood and we see that Mary and Joseph have continued to raise him in accordance with God's word parents may we do the same I said this last week what you're doing right now with your kids and grandkids matters for eternity it is shaping them spiritually don't take that lightly and don't waste your time with them you have been put into their life as a believer, given more time than, than me or anybody else in your child's life to train them in godliness, to share Christ with them, to escort them to Christ, to establish them in the truth of his word and equip them for what they've been called to do, which is be mirrors of God's glory. Amen? Don't waste those opportunities. Notice how faithful Mary and Joseph are. Look at verse 40 and 41. 
41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. They don't miss a year. Many of you know, feast of Passover was taken by God's people in remembrance of God's greatest act of deliverance before Christ goes to Calvary. At that time, when God's people were thinking back on God's greatest work of deliverance, they go back to Egyptian bondage when God delivered them out. That's why God goes back there again and again and again throughout his word. They were to remember that. And, and they took this feast of Passover to remind them of their great deliverance. And here we have Mary and Joseph with Jesus here traveling to Jerusalem. They are faithful. We read in Deuteronomy 16, 16 that only the men were required to make this journey to Jerusalem. So the fact that Mary and Joseph and Jesus make this journey year after year together from Galilee, which is like three to four days journey, this shows they were devout. They are serious followers of the one true God. We don't often think about that, do we? We don't often think about how God used the faithfulness of Jesus' parents in his early years to prepare him to be our perfect representative. And so here we see, once again, Jesus had a faithful mother and father, and he too was faithful. He fulfilled the law of God, which included obediently traveling to Jerusalem and attending feasts like this one. He obeyed the Father perfectly as our perfect representative. He perfectly met the demands of God's commands on our behalf. In every way that you and I failed, Christ succeeded from his early life up until his death. He lived the life you and I could never live, the life we failed to live, so that you and I, through faith alone and him alone, could be forgiven of our failures, cleansed from our sin, receive his righteous life in exchange for our sinful one, and be restored to a right relationship with God. Notice what else we learn. We also learn, point number three, Jesus prioritized his relationship with his heavenly father. Look at verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Uh-oh. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Imagine that, parents. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So his parents leave Jerusalem. They head home and they assume that Jesus is with them, with the big crew that they went with, with cousins or aunts or uncles. They traveled in large groups, but they assumed wrong. Jesus was not with them. They don't know where he is. We do with Luke's help. We know that he stayed in Jerusalem. His parents do not. They began to search for him, could not find him. It's like the biblical version of home alone, right? Jesus is truly home. He's not alone. Can you imagine what they were going through? I mean, think of Kevin's parents, those of y'all that watch home alone, right? Frantically looking for their son. How frantic would Mary and Joseph had been? Think about it. 
in addition to him being their son, he's the Messiah. We've lost the Messiah. I mean, you had one job to do, right? And you blew it. Well, they find that their son is not lost, but he is at home. And if they would have truly known who he was, they would have known where to look. And it wouldn't have taken them three days. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He is maturing. He is growing in wisdom far beyond that of any other 12-year-old, so much so that these scholars in the temple are, are amazed at his understanding and his answers. Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So they, they find him in the temple after they've looked everywhere else for three days. And Jesus makes it known to them that they should have known where to find him in his father's house with men of the word studying the word. That is where home was for the Messiah. Home for the Messiah was in the presence of the father with his people studying his word. Believers, is that home for you? Does it feel like home when you're in Christ's church with his people, studying his word in his presence? It should feel that way. If it doesn't, you might have a problem we need to talk about. It should feel that way. Jesus modeled this for us. Think about this. Jesus, the Word of God incarnate, wanted to study the Word of God with people who knew the Word of God. If the Word longed to study the Word with people who knew the Word, how much more so should we? We should. And while he caused his mother great distress, she had to learn that Jesus' first family was his heavenly Father and God's people. He tells them this over and over again. Look at Matthew 12. We got it up on the screen, beginning in verse 46. Look at this with me. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When looking for Jesus, Mary and Joseph should have known and they eventually learned that Jesus was at home in his Father's house studying his Father's word with his Father's people. When Leslie and I are talking and the girls come in to interrupt, Put them on the scene. They're in here. It's part of the curse of being a, having a dad as a preacher. But they come in, and sometimes they'll interrupt. Not always. Sometimes they'll not. But uh, we'll tell them. Mom and dad are talking. Dad and mom are talking. We're, we're giving them the pecking order. 
Okay? That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's revealing here to Mary and Joseph. He's letting them know his father gets priority. Why? Because he's God. And God always gets priority. How's that for an answer? Two, think about this. Jesus was God's son long before he was ever their son. He's the eternal son of God. He has existed in relationship with his father and with the spirit from eternity past. That was home for Jesus, and it should be for us as well. Notice Jesus also impresses with his insight. We're told in verse 47, again, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Of course they were. He's the word of God incarnate. He will grow and mature to become the rabbi of rabbis, the one who will challenge the most gifted experts of Jewish law, who will school the most knowledgeable of Jewish leaders, impressive leaders like Nicodemus, a leader among Jewish leaders, would come and sit and learn from Jesus. And boy, would Jesus ever school Nicodemus. Read John 3 this week. Nicodemus comes in with his impressive religious resume and Jesus tells him to be a part of God's kingdom, you got to scrap all that. you got to scrap all you've been doing up to this point. you got to be born again. you got to be changed from the inside out. That's what he told Nicodemus. Jesus will continue from this point forward to astonish and amaze all who enter into his presence and sit under his teaching. He starts at the age of 12. Believers, do you, like Jesus, long to be in the presence of God with his people studying his word? Do you long to be in God's presence throughout the week in the days leading up to this glorious day when we enter into God's presence together corporately? You should. God sent his son he has given us his written word he has established his church given us his people so that we might do just that he wants to commune with you and me through his word through prayer through worship publicly and privately he wants your time with him to feel the most like home it's what he wants you're going to be challenged this week in your study guide that you received in your bulletin to make some commitments that I believe will move you forward to feeling more at home in the presence of God, in His Word and with His people. So be sure and go through that, okay? Look again, beginning in verse 49 again. And He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them, they will, they don't yet. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Notice what the Holy Spirit highlights there. Jesus was submissive to who? To his parents, yes. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now notice the end of verse 51. We're told Jesus' mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
This is not the first time that Luke tells us what's going on in Mary's mind and in her heart. When Mary is with child in Luke 1, remember she's worshipful and she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He is mighty and he has done great things for me. When the shepherds pay her, Joseph and Jesus, a visit after Jesus' birth, we're told by Luke in Luke 2.19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. When she has an encounter with Simeon and Anna in the temple in, in Jerusalem in Luke 2, and here's about all the glorious things they have to say about their son. We're told by Luke in Luke 2.33, both Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about him. And here again, after this encounter with her 12-year-old son in the temple, we're told Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, how did Luke know what was going on in Mary's heart and mind while writing? Well, we know he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? Scholars also believe he asked her. He asked her. While Luke is being guided and directed by the Spirit of God, writing his gospel account, we also know, he tells us, that he had access to eyewitnesses. And, and many believe that he interviewed Mary, that, that she was one of the eyewitnesses he spoke with. Many believe she is the one who gave Luke all of these great details surrounding the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. This makes sense when you study these stories and when you consider the intimate details about how Mary was affected personally and internally by these events. I believe this is as well. I, I believe Luke, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's giving us here Mary's accounts of these things. I, I believe that. Now, I don't know this for sure, and I, I won't until... One day when I get to ask her, but I would like to think that this encounter with Luke and Mary here in getting these stories went down a little something like this. I don't know for sure, but I would like to think that, that Luke might have asked Mary, Mary, tell me about the earliest events of Jesus's life that showed you that this child, your son, was someone special. What, when did you have Hence, when did you know that your son is God the Son, the Messiah? I would like to think he asked a question like that along those lines and maybe Mary paused for a moment and thought to herself and said, well, there was this one time with an angel when I received news that I had been favored by God and was going to be given a child from the Holy Spirit. There was another occasion with my cousin Elizabeth when her son John leapt in her womb, revealing to her that my son is the Lord. There was this visit from shepherds on the night Jesus was born, and their story of being visited by a heavenly host announcing his birth. There was this encounter with Simeon and Anna shortly after Jesus' birth in the temple. And there was this time when Jesus was 12 in the temple during the Feast of Passover when Jesus himself affirmed what the angels and the shepherds and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna had all affirmed that he himself 
is God the Son. And Luke, he's writing this account down for us. Again, guided and directed by the Spirit of God. And he's writing them so that we would read them, believe them, believe on him, on Christ, and have life in his name. So I want to leave you with the same question I left you with last week. What say you? Who do you say that he is? Scripture tells us that he is God the Son who became one of us to live the perfect life for us and lay that perfect life down and take it up again so that we, through faith alone, in him alone, could be rescued from sin and death and restored to a right relationship with God through Christ. That is who Jesus believed himself to be. That's who he claimed to be. That's what his followers said of him. And that's what God said of him in his word. The question for you is this. What say you? What say you? Do you believe it? Are you trusting in him alone for salvation? If not, I pray you would today. Let's pray together.